Special counsel Jack Smith's criminal investigation into Donald Trump continues to heat up. And just this past week, Jack Smith secured key grand jury testimony of one of Trump's former Homeland Security Department deputies, Ken Cuccinelli, who Trump had asked to seize voting machines after the 2020 election. So, Popak, will Trump be indicted in February is a big question. But perhaps even a bigger question is who will indict Donald Trump first? Will it be special counsel Jack Smith? Will it be Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg? Or could it be Fulton County District Attorney Fawny Willis? And that's what you're pointing at, Popak. And just this week, Fulton County District Attorney Fawny Willis informed the judge who was supervising the criminal special grand jury that she had impaneled to investigate 2020 election interference. She said that charging decisions were imminent. That is a direct quote from Fawny Willis. And she asked the judge not to release the special grand jury's report because of those imminent charging decisions. And Bobak, we all know what MAGA stands for, right? It stands for make attorneys get attorneys. Yet another example of it this week after last week, where we talked about Trump's lawyer being sanctioned basically a million dollars. This week, the state bar of California has filed a complaint against Trump's lawyer and criminal co-conspirator John Eastman seeking to disbar and revoke John Eastman's legal license. In my view, and would love to get your take, Popak, on this edition of Legal AF, the case to revoke Eastman's law license is almost a certain winner. We will explain why. And in this week of accountability, and look, folks, I know it's been a long week, but let's not forget what happened earlier in the week on Monday where we saw the Justice Department secure the convictions of four more terrorist oath keepers for seditious conspiracy and numerous other felonies in federal court in Washington, D.C. That happened in one courtroom while they were prosecuting the Proud Boy terrorist organization in another courtroom. Can we compare the current Department of Justice successful prosecutions with Bill Barr and John Durham, and especially the more we learn about them actually covering up more crimes for Donald Trump. We got to talk about this on this episode. And it looks also like in this week of accountability, the Justice Department is getting ready to indict the MAGA Republican, the complete and utter fraud. I mean, it's the same thing, MAGA Republican, complete and utter fraud. But George Santos, for his many, many, many crimes, the Department of Justice reached out to the Federal Elections Commission and said, don't charge him yet. We got this. We'll explain the implications of that request by the DOJ to the FEC on this edition of Legal AF, the most consequential legal news of the week of our time. I'm Ben Micellis, joined by Michael Popak. Michael, how are you doing sans glasses? Sans glasses. I'm doing fine. I want to I want to spend a minute talking about something we're not going to talk about on the podcast, but something that's near and dear to you and me. And I want to do a, a, a moment about Tyree Nichols. Um, and, uh, and our hearts go out to what happened there. You have, a, you have a big background in police brutality cases. I've been involved as well. We're going to follow it as prosecutions continue and, and as, there's a, as there's a court case to follow. But we, we'd be remiss if we didn't 
start the podcast with acknowledging the family, the loss, the bereavement, and all of that. And so I wanted to I wanted to kick it off with that. We're not going to dive into it, but it is a it is a tragedy of, of epic proportion and and, um, and inhumane and immoral and depraved. And it happened in America once again. Happens too many times here. Just happening once is enough. And the fact that it is repeated over and over again, as President Biden said, uh, if we are to live up to our ideals of who we tell the world we are, um, we need changes. This cannot be happening so frequently here. This should not be happening at all here in the United States. It is utterly despicable. Real reform, real change is needed, um, and real accountability is needed. And again, we're not going to get more into it here. We will follow uh, those events as they unfold, um, as criminal proceedings unfold, um, and we will keep you updated there. Um, let's get into Jack Smith's criminal uh, investigation. As we mentioned at the top, it is indeed heating up even more. We've been covering the flurry of subpoenas that Jack Smith has been sending. Um, Donald Trump has been railing about uh, key witnesses testifying before the grand jury. Um, and now we've learned of one. There's probably a lot of others that we don't know about, because as we've talked about here, grand jury proceedings are held in secret, um, criminal grand jury proceedings. That is, so how do we know? Well, you can actually have cameras and have people stand by the courthouse where a lot of other things are taking place. As I mentioned before, we have, you know, the Oath Keepers trials and the Proud Boys trials and other insurrectionist trials. And guess what? They're all in the same courtroom or right around the same area. So there's a lot of media there. So you can actually see individuals entering and exiting if they're unable to kind of hide and they're not able to, you know, sneak in. So we saw Ken Cuccinelli uh, and the media saw Ken Cuccinelli walking in. It was clear that he was there for grand jury testimony in connection with special counsel Jack Smith's criminal uh, investigation into Donald Trump's election interference. And Cuccinelli is important for a lot of reasons. Um, he was one of the top Homeland Security deputies. It actually turned out he was illegally appointed under the Federal Vacancies Act. He should never have even had that position in the first place. Like a lot of Trump appointees, they were designated individuals who were never actually confirmed because Trump broke the law in everything he did. And that's why even the acting Homeland Security head, uh, Chad Wolf, uh, was determined by a federal judge in New York, Judge Gardafi, that everything that he did was unlawful because he was unlawfully appointed. So just kind of start with that. But then following the 2020 election, through Mike, Fitt, Mike Flynn's plan and Sidney Powell's plan and Giuliani's plan, Trump had Giuliani go to Cuccinelli and tell him to seize voting machines, that they had prepared an executive order to seize the voting machines to try to spread uh, more conspiracy theories about the election, to spread more disinformation. Uh, Cuccinelli didn't say he was not willing to do it. He just said that's not what the Homeland Security Department does. It's like, sorry, we, we can't do that, even if you gave us an executive order. So that plan never panned out. One other thing to mention about Cuccinelli, and then I'll pass it to you, Popak, is that all of his text messages and emails, uh, same thing with Chad Wolf, the head of the Homeland Security Department, all of their emails and text messages leading up to the January 6th insurrection were destroyed, um, and all of their backups uh, were destroyed. Um, so I would 
Yeah, things are heating up. So, so um, let's start with Cuccinelli. I'll do a split screen. When he was the Virginia Attorney General, he got an award called the Defender of the Constitution Award. And that guy, the Defender of the Constitution, walking up the steps of the federal courthouse on Thursday, was asked by CNN, are you here to testify before the grand jury? He said, yep. They said, what about? He said, don't know. So I love the the fall from grace from people who pounded their chest and acted like they were patriots and defenders of the Constitution and now being dragged in by Jack Smith into one of several grand juries about topics, including the ones that you just identified. We know Ken Cuccinelli testified before the Jan 6 committee. Of course, his witness statement is already out there. Um, the the um, part about the seizing of the voting machines, which I know you've done a hot take on, we've talked about it a little bit on legal AF. Let, let's just let's just stay there for a moment. It's so breathtakingly shocking, and you know it's what Mussolini would do. It's what Hitler did, um, and it's what um, dictators do around the country, which is seize voting machines because they don't like the results of the election. You know, like a child who doesn't like the way the game is going and just throws the table over. And, and starts again. It's the same kind of thing. So this... Popak, we used to reset uh, what, what we did as kids, <laughs> me and the brothers, which is like seize the, which is the equivalent of seize the voting machines. But we would be playing PlayStation right before the oh, yeah. other brother was about to lose. You'd hit the reset button. You turn it off. <laughs> right. right. And, then the other brother, right. Yeah, and then the other brother would cry. <laughs> Sorry. Right. Go there ahead. you go. Same thing. Same exact thing. Um, but I, I want to go over who was the architect for this. This, uh, who, who hatched this plan. You had um, Colonel Phil Waldron, former military, former army, who's, who's a crackpot and was part of the inner circle of Trump that got even more inner during the coup plotting. So you had Phil Waldron, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, also army. They were the ones that came up with the ideas about using the Pentagon, the army, to seize voting machines they were guided in this plot you know they were stirring this cauldron of crap by Sidney powell at, at or around the same moment when we get now that we've got the timeline right from the jan 6 committee it's right around the same time and we heard about this at the time i reported on it that trump was seriously considering naming Sidney powell special counsel to investigate election fraud until Chip Cipollone and others said over our dead body, because she is, as, as Cipollone has testified, nutty and not moored to reality in no way. The other person that Trump apparently had in mind for this fake job that he was going to create in the waning days of his administration was Ken Cuccinelli, lawyer, former attorney general of Virginia and all that. So those, it was one of those two choices. So you've got Colonel Waldron, Lieutenant General Flynn, guided by Powell saying it's okay, telling Trump, whispering in Trump's ear, that they should use the Pentagon. Apparently, two executive orders were actually drafted then. One, an executive order to authorize the, the Pentagon to seize them, and the alternate one, which is where Cuccinelli comes in, the alternate one was, was to have the Department of Homeland Security do it. Led to the phone call with Cuccinelli, where they asked Cuccinelli to kind of find the authority to do this, and he like came back on the line and said, Mm, I, I, we don't have that authority. Um, I don't know if that was a moment of courage or he was scared shitless or whatever, but he actually testified to the Jan 6th at least. We don't know what he did to the grand jury now, but to Jan 6th, 
he told them that he was never asked about actually the he didn't know about the executive order to draft and so it was more it was more of the conversation is all that he could remember and of course as you said giuliani was guiding powell as well so you had giuliani and powell as the lawyers waldron and flynn as the former military guys that trump loved to surround himself with using the and I think it's so back to things that you and I've talked about and, and making this a, a continuity. He, Trump's not using the military appropriately to defend the Capitol during Jan 6, but he's going to use the military to seize voting machines so that he can, I don't know what, review them. So Cuccinelli looked pained during the CNN moment on the steps because he's in harm's way, putting aside for a moment that everything he did or said while he was the acting deputy secretary, as you outlined at the beginning, was completely invalid and ultra varies and, and, you know, and all of that. Um, putting that aside for a minute, you know, he got looped into, you know, a real, a real coup element of seizing voting machines using the military. Um, I mean, I can't even imagine if that order had gone out, what somebody like Miley or, you know, the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff head would have done. They would have had to, I think at that point, playing this out, the 25th Amendment would have had been exercised, or the military would have had to basically, you know, say no um, at, at that moment. But we'll never know, although it is scary to think we were on the precipice of that with this uh, with this Donald Trump. Opak, I think that's a chilling analysis of what could have been. But nonetheless, when we're talking about conspiracies, and we've talked about this before on the show, um, and it's worth mentioning as we talk about the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and uh, the seditious conspiracy trials. The conspiracy doesn't have to be successful for you to be criminally charged with the conspiracy. Engaging in the conspiracy with the intent to overthrow our democracy, uh, that intent is enough. And so the fact that they didn't ultimately overthrow our democracy um, does not immunize them from liability. Uh, so switching gears from special counsel Jack Smith, though, to uh, Georgia, this was a big, this a big week for accountability there, Michael Popak. I mean, we've got Jack Smith engaging in, uh, you know, th this criminal investigation of Donald Trump. We've got the DOJ prosecuting Oath Keepers and Proud Boys and getting guilty convictions. And then we have this big hearing that we had talked about previously where uh, Fonnie Willis, Fulton County District Attorney, would go before Judge McBurney, the judge who's been presiding over the special grand jury that's been impaneled for a very long period of time that has been receiving this evidence uh, from uh, Fonnie Willis. Witnesses have been called. It's been a very diligent investigation. The special grand jury completed its services. They prepared a report. They wanted to release the report, the special grand jury's report of who they think should be indicted for 2020 election interference. They're saying, release our report. We voted to release it. And Judge McBurney uh, responded and said, look, reading the tea leaves, I'm inclined to release it. There seems to be a public uh, in the interest of the public to release this. But I want to hear from the parties. And I think Judge McBurney was specifically thinking of more of the possible targets of the criminal investigation and the people who may be listed as recommendations of people who should be indicted. 
Um, just to remind our viewers and listeners one more time, this special grand jury did not have the power to indict. They had the power to recommend indictments, and then another grand jury would uh, actually indict. And so for all we know, that other grand jury has already um, is already impaneled and already ready to indict. But I think people thought that it was going to be these uh, possible uh, criminal defendants who are going to object. But it was actually Fawny Willis who said, don't release the report yet, Judge McBurney, please, because charging decisions are imminent. Charging decisions meaning that the Fulton County District Attorney is getting ready to charge multiple, multiple individuals for their role in 2020 election interference. What do you make of that, Michael? The scientists and engineers that support the next mission to Mars could be in this class. Getting a degree at ASU is a journey that can take you anywhere. Into a world of groundbreaking technology and renowned award-winning faculty. Professors who help you to impact the world. Whether you're on campus or at home, becoming your best starts with learning from the best. 2020 election interference. What do you make of that, Michael? Yeah, that was a, I watched the 90 minute hearing. Um, she, uh, uh, Fawny spoke for about eight minutes, but it was the most powerful uh, eight minutes in that entire hearing. I kind of, the rest of it was sort of inside baseball and we all geeked out about whether this is a general presentment under Georgia law and does it have to be made public? And, you know, the media got up and, and made their argument. We'll talk about Donald Trump's ridiculous moronic comment about him not participating in it and how he thinks he's been exonerated because he wasn't uh, compelled to testify before the grand jury that's looking into his own criminal action. Putting that for aside for a moment, the, I listened very, very carefully and watched very, very carefully because you and I are practitioners. We've been in the courtroom. I pick up, I pick up as much body in from body language and situational awareness of what's around me, including the judge and my opponent, as I do from anything else in the room that's being spoken. And, and uh, Ms. Willis's uh, responses to the judge, direct, um, almost curt. <laughs> she, she really doesn't want this published, the special purpose grand jury report, for a couple of reasons that she stated. One, I need to defend making sure that the, that the multiple defendants, not possible ones, not maybe ones, multiple defendants that will come out of this when I make my decision that I haven't yet made, that might will be making it imminently about seeking indictment from a regular grand jury. I'm worried about them having a fair trial. I don't want to buy an appeal. I don't want them to have an appellate argument that they didn't get a fair trial because of the disclosure of all this material. And she also said, I don't want my hand. She didn't say it quite this way, but I'm some, I'm, I'm uh, paraphrasing. I don't want my hand forced to make the decision to seek the indictment before I am ready. And then she outlined all the ways that she's been methodical and sober in her approach, and she doesn't want that uh, apple cart thrown over now. She said, I, I made a decision. I, I told everybody I'd make my decision whether to seek a special purpose grand jury quickly, and I did. I told everyone that if I got the special purpose grand jury, I would only keep it in session for as long as it was authorized. I did that too. I finished my work in the seven months, that, in actually shorter period of time. And now I, I will make my decision imminently. The other reason from her body language, not her body language, because you had to see it. The reporting didn't pick it up. 
when she said the following, it was the sentence before the comment about imminent decision that was important. She said to the judge, there's only two people in this room that have read that report, me and you, judge. And you know, and she didn't wink, but she says, you know, dot, 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 based on what's in there that you've read, my decision is imminent. And that imminent also carried a lot of weight because I think it also signaled to the judge, like, don't be so quick to release the report. I'm going to be making my decision really quickly. So give me a little bit of time. Just to, just give me a hot minute. I'll get this decision made and then you can do what you want. Um, but she really doesn't want it released until she's gone through the grand jury process or at least until she's made her decision. I don't know what's in there, but it's got to we, we've always suspected that it is a bombshell against defendants that we've heard of i said on the show with karen it we're not i guarantee it's not going to be a list of defendants that were like who, who who are these people the fake electors that's the only people that she she indicted the targets and she's identified and we've been able to piece together there's there's about 17 to 20 targets of the special purpose grand jury we think that includes meadows eastman who we're going to talk about a bit later in the pod lindsey graham and donald J. Trump. So some combination of that group is probably, I would predict, and I think you agree, part of the multiple defendants that she is soon going to make a imminent decision about whether to go into the regular grand jury. A regular grand jury that's, people are like, oh my God, there's going to be a delay. Regular grand juries are already there. She doesn't have to assemble. I mean, it may take her a little while. She doesn't have to assemble one and she'll be able, we figured it out from looking at the statute, when Karen and I looked at this more closely, unlike in New York, where they have to bring in live witnesses to give non-hearsay testimony, Georgia allows Georgia allows hearsay. So she'll be able to take that whole report and have the witness statements read in that she's already developed. She might bring a few live people in that she can guarantee will be impactful on the on the grand on the new grand jury. But she doesn't have to start from scratch. It's not going to be a seven-month-long process at the grand jury. That's why. Uh, in the beginning of the pod, I kind of thought that the, the of the three horses that are in this race, the one that I think at the end of the home stretch is going to is going to nip the tape is Fawny Willis, uh, because I think she's that far ahead of all of of all of the rest of them. So that was my takeaway. And then the last thing I wanted to comment on, Ben, is um, what could the indictments look like? And I can tell you one that I would be shocked if it's not in her charging document, ultimately, and that is Georgia Civil Rico. Racketeering Influence and Corrupt Organization Act. It is one of the broader ones in the states. It's bigger than the, it's broader than the federal one in terms of the ability to piece together a racketeering case against people. All you need is a predicate act, which would be the phone call, for instance, from uh, Meadows and Trump to Raffensperger and others trying to find the votes. And then you just need any, any pattern, which can come from state or federal law in Georgia. It doesn't have to be and so, you know, we know what that is, the fake electors, the emails, the phone calls, Giuliani coming to the state and making presentations. I mean, she's got it. And she has used that civil RICO differently than any other prior Fulton County DA. She has brought more Georgia civil RICO in the last two years than in the 10 years combined for that office. And she hired a special ADA who's a uh, a, a master or an expert in Georgia Rico to work in the office. She's using Georgia Rico against Donald Trump and others, I think. Let's not forget, she has the phone call. 
which jo- which Donald Trump calls the perfect phone call, which is all projection, which was anybody who listens to that phone call will tell you that's a crime, what you are listening to. When he says, find me 11,780 votes or else, very bad things are going to happen to you, Brad, or words to those effect. And then you have all the other conduct surrounding that, which it wasn't an idle threat. By the way, I think the threat alone is criminal, (laughs) but it wasn't just the threat. It was then actually positioning people to engage in conduct that would be harassing and threatening and intimidating and actually making good on the threats if those votes were not found. And by those votes found, Brad Raffensperger, who's testified before the special grand jury, who would testify at a criminal proceeding against Donald Trump. By the way, this is what would make it so fascinating. Bonnie Willis's uh, witnesses, a lot of them, are going to be Republicans. You know, Republican state officials who said, look, we even voted for Donald Trump. And, and a lot of them are feckless and have no spine. And sometimes when you ask them, would you vote for the guy again? Sometimes they'll say that they will. That's a whole nother conversation that is. It just shows you, you know, how spineless these people are and how they'll let fascism creep up. But these are people, though, who would say that, but then testify against Trump. And Raffensperger said, no, that was extortion. So when you have the secretary of a state saying, I was extorted, I understood that to be a threat. I felt threatened. You don't have much more of a compelling witness come in, play that tape, have the secretary of state testify in Georgia think it's i think it's a strong case against donald trump we'll see if she indicts but again charging decisions are imminent i agree popak it's not just going to be the fake electors but they're going to get indicted the fake electors these top republicans in georgia who are the maga republicans in georgia who who, who link back to john eastman john eastman's john eastman too by the way we're going to talk about john eastman soon He's throwing out an F-bomb, Popak. That was an unprecedented uh, F-bomb that you threw out. No, we're going to keep it in there. I'm going to have Salty make sure. Salty probably already (laughs) censored it, but a very casual F-bomb you're throwing out there without really. (laughs) Is it maybe no glasses, Popak? a bit edgier than glasses, Popak? Yeah. Yeah, it's like um, it's my alter ego. It's no glasses, Popak. Uh, like Wario. The, the testimony, the, <laughs> the, the the testimony that's coming out of like the G, the Republican GOP, the, the GOP heads in Georgia tie Eastman directly to the fake elector scandal, and that he, you know, one of them testified um, that you know he didn't really think Eastman believed it at all, but just saw it as a way to delay the peaceful transfer of power. I think John Eastman, we're going to talk about him later, is in a world of hurt. I'd be shocked if it's not Meadows, Trump, and Eastman. I'm not sure she she, she bags Lindsey Graham. Maybe. I don't, I don't like Lindsey Graham's phone call any more than I like Donald Trump's. I don't like phone calls to talk about, can, is there a way for us to throw out legitimately, mail-in, <laughs> legitimately filed or mailed mail-in ballots? No. Our absentee ballots. But he might skate. But Trump, the phone call, Meadows, the phone call, Giuliani, Eastman, I think they're screwed in a good way. (laughs) Popak is cursing. You know who else is probably (laughs) cursing, not casually, 
but cursing at himself in the mirror, what has become of me? John Eastman, John Eastman's been a lawyer since 1997. He was a very distinguished professor at the uh, Chapman Law School out here in California, uh, you know, known as a constitutional uh, scholar, but, you know, he turned MAGA. You know, you look at these, you look at these videos of him on the stage on January 6th, it's clear that this was an individual who just, you know, you know, who, who he rubbed the uh, genie bottle and said, I want, I want to be famous, you know, and it's like the, the tale where, okay, well, you got your fame, now you're infamous, and now you're a criminal, and now you're a MAGA extremist, and now you're going to jail, and now you've lost yep. your legal license. It's the, it's it's the like old damn story. Yankees. Yeah, it's it, there. There's a famous book and, and musical called Damn Yankees, where the guy literally sells his soul to the devil in order to play for the Yankees and win the pennant. And then, you know, he's got to pay the price at the end to the devil. And that's the story of uh, maybe the story of John Eastman. But, you know, maybe John Eastman has just always been a criminal and just has hit it for a lot of his uh, career. Um, but uh, Eastman already been called out by a federal judge in the Central District of California, Judge David Carter, in a lawsuit that John Eastman filed. What I love about this, too, is like, so Donald Trump files a lawsuit in federal court against Hillary Clinton in March of 2022, and Donald Trump loses, and not only does he lose, he gets sanctioned $1 million, right? John Eastman files a lawsuit in federal court in the Central District of California to block the January 6th committee from getting his text message and phone records. It was filed in California because that's where he lives. That's where he's a law professor. And the federal judge in California said, you're a criminal, <laughs> you're a criminal, made a judicial finding of that. The reason the judge made that judicial finding is because Eastman was asserting attorney-client privilege. So if his relationship with Donald Trump was an attorney-client relationship, which the judge found it to be, the only way or one of the only ways that that could uh, that those communications can be revealed if that is if there is an exception to the attorney-client privilege, and one of the exceptions is the crime fraud exception to attorney-client privilege, where you engage in criminal conduct because the law doesn't want to keep those communications a secret if if that that's what's going on in that attorney-client relationship, and so it's a two-step inquiry: one, where you engaged in a crime, and two were the emails, text messages, or documents in furtherance of the crime. And on two separate occasions, Judge David Carter said, this wasn't even like a legitimate attorney-client relationship. Maybe it started off that way, but this was a coup in search of a legal theory. You had a federal judge make that finding and make numerous factual findings that John Eastman and Donald Trump were engaged in criminal conspiracy, criminal obstruction. So we already have the judicial finding. Now comes the California State Bar, and what the California State Bar does is they file um, a complaint with 17 different counts um, as part of their disciplinary complaint. The technical name for it in California is called a, an NDC, a Notice of Disciplinary Charges, with 11 separate charges against Eastman, who engaged in a course of conduct to plan, promote, and assist then President Trump in executing a strategy unsupported by facts or law to overturn the legitimate results of the 2020 presidential election by obstructing the count of electoral votes of certain states. 
And what this proceeding would do is revoke Eastman's legal license. He would not be a lawyer anymore. Eastman sent a statement, oh, it's a witch hunt. They're all coming after me. Can't lawyers represent people with unpopular positions? Well, can represent people with unpopular positions, but the lawyer can't engage in a freaking coup to destroy our democracy. You became a criminal. This seems like a slam dunk case for the California State Bar, even if a federal judge did not make that ruling. But you have a federal judge ruling. So to me, all the state bar has to do in revoking Eastman's license is basically request judicial notice. You know, and Eastman can argue all of these things, but a federal judge has already made that finding. And one other point before I throw it to you is that don't you think Alina Haba and Christina Bob are next? Michael Popak. Yeah, I like, I love, I've always loved your make, uh, make attorneys get attorneys. And I did the math while we were preparing for today's show. So far, uh, 17 lawyers uh, representing Donald Trump around the country have faced ethics complaints, bar, bar disbarment proceedings, and or, and or have been fined and sanctioned by state and federal judges. 17. Wow. We usually talk about the usual suspects, Alina Haba, Sidney Powell. Remember Lynn Wood? We used to talk about Lynn Wood. Now John Eastman, Rudy Giuliani, and the rest. But there's others we haven't even really talked about. There were out there filing lawsuits in the hinterlands that they've been sanctioned and or had bar grievances filed for them. And the number's gotten up to 17, which is really, really crazy. Let's remind everybody what John Eastman did. John Eastman was the architect of the coup. There's no other way to put it. We talked about Phil Waldron and Michael Flynn earlier about, you know, the, the, uh, sh the, the shadow military operation that uh, Donald Trump was going to use and have his former army guys guide him on that. But the coup architect, the brains of the operation, if you will, is this former law professor who nobody ever heard of before, a wannabe law scholar, as you as you uh, rightly pointed out. And he came up with a, a two-pronged plan. One, lean on Mike Pence, pressure Mike Pence, and convince him that the Electoral Count Act gives him the power to, th to not count the votes, not certify the election for Joe Biden by time and have him accept instead the second prong of the, of, of the plan was the fake electors. We'll have all these fake electors who are now all going to jail um, in Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Colorado, and other places. Mail these things in, not to the National, well, yeah, to the National Archive. Not on official paper, not done properly, not really electors at all, phony fake electors. And, but they'll come in, get delivered to Mike Pence, who will, who will recognize them and or delay the process for at least 10 days to give the time for the legislatures to figure shit out. This is John Eastman's grand plan. Everybody, um, everybody in the round of Pence, like Greg Jacob as general counsel, um, and people around Trump, like Eric Hirschman and Pat Cipollone said Eastman was, I mean, nutty professor makes him sound, you know, feckless and mild and innocuous. Because his craziness almost overthrew this country, or took us to the took us to the brink. So, you know, he's the guy that Eric Hirschman said, "You better get a good effing criminal criminal lawyer." And the next words out of your mouth, all I want to hear is peaceful transfer of power. Um, he was referred to as by Greg Jacobs as the serpent in the serpent in the ear of Donald Trump throughout. Um, although he's still defending himself in in uh, interviews given at the New York Times and everything else. 
So, and he's involved directly in the Georgia interference and the fake electors issue there, which is why I think he's likely on the hit list for, uh, for Bonnie Willis when she moves around to indict. Now, he's, as you said earlier about him rubbing the genie bottle and we, uh, we joked around about damn Yankees, um, there is a principle, a protocol that you and I learned as lawyers, I learned from a mentor of mine. If you're gonna do criminal defense work, which I did for a time, nonviolent criminal defense work. Um, the number one rule is when the hearing is over and your client walks through the metal door, you walk out the front door, the wooden front door. And that means you represent your client zealously as you're required to do under our rules of ethics, but you don't, you don't become a criminal. You don't, you, you don't, otherwise you're gonna be walking through the metal door with them. And I've always, you know, it was, it was said to me sort of half jokingly when I was a very, very young lawyer, maybe one or two years out. I've never forgotten it. And not that I had to, I have my own morals and ethics, but it is an imagery that I've never forgotten. He's obviously lost his way, as, as have the other 17 that we've identified. But I agree with you. The way the bar complaint was written by, um, and this isn't even brought, I'm sure somebody like tipped them off and filed a bar complaint, but I think the bar can do it themselves. And in the bar complaint of the, of the uh, 11, they can, right? The 11 disciplinary counts that they've listed, um, I thought the statement that they made, which we, we touched on about usurping the will of the people, um, overthrowing an election, it, you know, that that is the most sacrosanct thing in our, in our country, in our republic. And the fact that you worked against that means you, shouldn't, you should no longer be a member of an honorable profession and be a part of our bar. And based on what I saw with Giuliani, D.C. and New York and other places, he's getting disbarred. You know, Popak, uh, it's just an interesting thing you mentioned. So different people can file bar complaints, um, and it's basically the same in different states. So a client can file the bar complaint against their lawyer, um, which usually has a you know a little bit more of a, a persuasive impact when the bar gets it i mean obviously you have to look at what the complaint is versus just if some random stranger you know files it or your opponent in the litigation files it um so, you know so it could be filed that way it could be filed from someone in the action the state bars on their own can self-initiate investigations based on a judicial ruling or a finding or something that they're aware of. And they have teams that are looking into, you know, that if there's a, a ruling that sanctions somebody. Um, and, you know, for example, if you're sanctioned by a court over a certain amount of money, uh, most states will require that you self-report that sanction to the state bar, and then they could initiate action, you know, based on the sanction. And also members of the public, concerned citizens, anybody who's watching can file a complaint against somebody like Eastman or Alina Haba or Christina Bob, you know, you know, on the merits of the fact that the uh, underlying actions that they filed were frivolous or that they've been engaged in misconduct. And then it's up to the ultimately the bar investigators to take action. Different states have different state bar authorities and they're based in different areas of like the government. Sometimes they're independent bodies. Sometimes they're run by the legislative bodies. So it's different in each state. But what I do wonder though, 
you know, Popat, you gave those statistics about the lawyers in those in that first wave of Trump litigation. But when you have someone like Judge Donald Middlebrooks in the Southern District of Florida state in his order how every single accusation brought by Alina Haba and Donald Trump is frivolous, without merit, was done to harass. It's also, to me, a judicial finding that's made of unethical behavior, um, meriting Alina Haba to lose her bar license. And so I wonder there if there are investigations and proceedings or complaints being filed by the public in New York and New Jersey and perhaps other places where Alina Haba is licensed to revoke her license. And, and I always say, you know, make attorneys get attorneys. We've said this from the outset. When Alina Haba started, you know, uh, getting on the scene and Christina Bob, it's like, we, we, we said this on the show, it's like, you're going to lose your license. It's not a matter of if you will lose your license. It's a matter of when you will lose your license. And yeah, you'll have this year or two years where I suppose you'll get fame on right-wing echo chamber media and they'll treat you like you're a hero, but they're going to abandon you right away. You're going to have no legal license and your legacy in the United States of America is going to be like a freaking traitor. And you know, that you're aligned with the Oath Keepers and you're aligned with, you know, you know, with Trump, you know, you're aligned with terrorists and that by, that by proxy makes you a terrorist. It makes you a traitor. We're not afraid to call that out here on the Midas Touch Network. We're going to talk about some traitors in a little bit, these Oath Keepers, and they keep getting convicted in very difficult trials. You know, seditious conspiracy is not a, is not a cause of action that has been a criminal cause of action that's used frequently, but it's been used with regular success now by the Department of Justice. I want to talk about that. First, I want to talk about our sponsor, Z-Biotics. Ever skipped a workout because of drinks the night before? Me too. If you're committed to your healthy routine this year, you need Z-Biotics. Z-Biotics pre-alcohol probiotic is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. So here's how it works. When you drink, Alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. It's designed to work like your liver, but in your gut where you need it most. Just remember to drink Zbiotics before drinking alcohol. Drink responsibly and get a good night's sleep to feel your best tomorrow. The first time I tried Z-Biotics was on a vacation with my fiance. As I instructed, I drank a bottle of Z-Biotics before any alcohol, and I was amazed at how good I felt the next day. Give Z-Biotics a try for yourself. Here's what you got to do. Go to zbiotics.com slash legal AF. That's Z-B-I-O-T-I-C-S dot com slash Legal AF to get 15% off your first order when you use Legal AF code at the checkout. The code is L-E-G-A-L-A-F at checkout. Zbiotics, and I think this is what's so key, it's backed with a 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason at all, they will refund your money with no questions asked. I love 100% money back guarantees like that. So here's what you got to do. Head to Zbiotics, Z-B-I-O-T-I-C-S dot com slash Legal AF and use the code Legal AF at checkout 
and get that 15% off. Remember, there's a 100% money-back guarantee. You're going to love Zbiotics and share with us your experiences after you use it. Thank you, Zbiotics, for sponsoring this episode of Legal AF. Michael Popak, go into this Oath Keepers uh, trial. We all knew about the first one back in 2022 with uh, Stuart Rhodes and uh, a group of four or five Oath Keepers in, in that trial. Two were convicted of seditious conspiracy. I think the other three were um, not convicted on the seditious conspiracy count, but all five in the first trial were convicted of obstruction and numerous other felonies. And so they're all going to jail for a very long time. The sentencing has not occurred yet. Of course, we'll keep everybody updated when that happens. Separately, there was a the next group of another four Oath Keepers who have been trial. It hasn't been reported with the same fanfare, if you will, as the first Oath Keepers, because Stuart Rhodes was the leader. But here you had people like Joseph Hackett of Florida and Roberto Minuta of Texas and David Morshell of Florida and Edward Vallejo of Arizona. Um, and these individuals were uh, part of the next group of seditious conspiracy charges. And as you and I have discussed, one thing the Department of Justice is very good at is learning from previous trials, what went well, what didn't go well, and kind of building on, on that foundation, looking at the Stuart Rhodes trial and seeing how uh, Stuart Rhodes' conduct was so reprehensible um, that some of the other defendants were able to kind of say, look, it was all Stuart Rhodes. We're just a bunch of idiots. We were brainwashed by Donald Trump. We're a bunch of morons. And, you know, we screwed up. We're not, we're not smart enough to be involved in seditious conspiracy. That was essentially the argument. Like, we did some bad stuff. We're just, we're not, these people are just a bunch of idiots who like to talk a big game but don't know what the hell they're doing. Right. That's that that's in kind of one of the common arguments that they're that they make. And so now the Department of Justice learned from that. And here they secured they went four for four on the seditious conspiracy count. And they also went four for four on the obstruction count. Um, there were some other lesser counts where there were some splits here and there. But on the big charges, all of them were uh, all of these Oath Keepers uh, were convicted. So. Popak, it, it, these are these are tough cases, though. Seditious conspiracy before Eric Garland. I mean, when was the last time? Thirty years ago, maybe once, and now it's thirty, been... thirty or forty years ago. Yeah, I want to give in my in my my uh, take on this. I want to give credit where credit is due. Department of Justice took on a high risk, high reward scenario and won twice. Seditious conspiracy was not the easiest charge could have brought it was the opposite it was the hardest charge they could have brought with a lot of risk of failure they've now convinced two juries two separate juries having one having not anything to do with the other that people are are guilty of seditious conspiracy so credit shout out to the department of justice not only are they like 10 and 0 but they are getting they're, they're going for double grand slam home runs and they're getting them in front of different juries. In fact, as you said, they're learning, like, I, I, I say it like machine learning, they're getting better and better each time. They're getting faster and faster each time, too. The Stuart Rhodes-Kelly Meggs jury from November 
was eight. It was an eight-week trial and uh, two and a half days of deliberation leading to the convictions. This one was a five-week trial and uh, the same two and a half days of deliberations. They're getting faster and faster, and they're learning. And one thing I think they learned is what you alluded to, Ben, is about grouping. Now, what it wasn't totally in their um, it wasn't in their power to fig to divide the trial up the way that it got divided. You and I reported last year that there was a hearing in front of Judge Meta, who we like a lot, who said, "Look, I first of all, I can't put eight defendants, eight defense lawyers, prosecution team, and everybody in front of one jury. All right, they're gonna they're, they're, there's only so much information that a jury can can keep track of. It's too much, and my courtroom can't handle it either. So I'm gonna split you guys." And, and I, you know, we didn't really focus on what the Department of Justice, if anything, was advocating in terms of the divide. It might have been better in retrospects. I think what the Department of Justice has learned is the following. If you put the foot soldiers along with the generals, it, as it was with Megs and Rhodes and the others in that trial in November, you, the jury may do a little bit of a compromise verdict, which they're not supposed to do. And, and nail the top two for seditious conspiracy and charge the others with something slightly, only slightly less than that. Maybe the way they, now in retrospect, maybe they would have advocated to a judge made a, we should, we need three trials, judge. We need one trial for these two. We need one, and then you can split the other two in half. And then they probably would have gotten cherry, 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 seditious conspiracy, seditious conspiracy, seditious conspiracy, because the jury wouldn't have been in a situation of potential compromise. So they're learning about the next large group. Proud Boys is already up and running. This is, again, as I've said in a number of hot takes, this is the Department of Justice that can walk and chew a lot of gum at the same time. They're still making arrests. You know, Marines are getting arrested for their role in the Jan 6 while one trial team is doing Oath Keepers, another trial team is doing Proud Boys, another trial team is getting Jan 6 convictions, another three or four trial teams are in grand juries getting indictments and the like all at the same time while they continue to investigate to try to grab people off the street that were involved who think after two years, I haven't been picked up yet. I got news. Two, there's two news flashes here. You posted to social media or anybody saw you out there and you haven't been picked up yet, they're coming for you. Pack a bag, leave it at the front door, keep one eye open because the FBI is coming through the front door. That's one. And second, cut a plea deal. Let me repeat, cut a plea deal. Don't listen to your family who's, you know, a lot of them are connected as a support group with the other crazy wives, mothers, and girlfriends, and husbands. Forget them. Don't listen to the lawyer who's also MAGA or QAnon, cut the deal. Because if you take this to trial, just as the, st the statistics tell you that you will lose at a federal trial in front of the Department of Justice anyway, and it's like 90% conviction rate if you don't get the plea, if you decide to go to trial, it's a very small It's 100% now if you're a Jan 6 insurrectionist. Take the plea deal. Fire your lawyer. Don't listen to your wife or girlfriend. Take the plea deal. Opak, I couldn't agree with you more there. And it leads me to, you talk about the success of the DOJ um, under Merrick Garland. And look, I know people want certain things to happen faster. I get it. Um, there's been over 500, 550 successful prosecutions or convictions so far. They're batting 1,000 
um, in their jury trial conviction rate right now, which is unbelievable. And it's been the biggest overall uh, prosecutorial endeavor in the history of the Department of Justice. And I agree, it will all be for naught if they don't go after the top, if they don't successfully prosecute Donald Trump and the individuals who were really at the heart of why all of this took place. Um, but you got to give success where success is due sometimes. And you got to come like th there's ways to compare it. Like if you look at what Merrick Garland's done, how special counsel Jack Smith has just kind of quietly put his head down and done his work. You compare that to what was going on under the Trump DOJ. So, you know, when everything's projection with Trump. Right. So when it's weaponization of the DOJ, you know, no, you weaponize the DOJ to go after your political enemies and you weaponized it in a way also that was kind of combines the hallmark of Trumpism, like complete corruption, fascism, and incompetence. Like it's a corrupt, fascist, <laughs> incompetent grilled cheese sandwich. No offense to grilled cheese, you know, but like, I'll call it a vomit sandwich then, because that's ultimately really what, you know, what, what the combination is when you look at all of those factors. I mean, Popak, this news, you know, this from the New York Times, who, by the way, were partially responsible for uh, perpetuating false information back in 2020 that I want you to, you know, speak to, but they did do a good report this week. Granted, they did a horrible report, you know, you know, three years ago that, that furthered some of the false news coming out about Durham's investigation. But what appears to have taken place is that Durham, uh, as part of his uh, investigation, when he was appointed by Bill Barr to try to go after all of the, all of the people, who provided accurate information about Trump's links to Russia, all Durham was able to actually find in terms of criminal conduct was that a group of Italian officials told, Dur told Durham's investigators they had information that Trump committed crimes. And rather than investigate those the appropriate way, Bill Barr assigned Durham to basically stop those uh, criminal, those criminal uh, investigatory efforts from taking place in its normal course, and then basically reported it out as though they had found criminal information about the origins of the Russian inquiry, when the information that they had only found was that Trump committed crimes to cover that up. I mean, I think that, frankly, that's not just unethical prosecutorial conduct. I think it's criminal. What do you make of that story, Popak, as we compare this to what Merrick Garland's doing? That might have been my favorite story of the week, the way you just told it. And and just to re-emphasize re some of that um, and to remind people, Bill Barr got the job as the attorney general. His tryout for that was he told the New York Times reporter when, when Trump was looking around for a replacement for Jeff Sessions that he thought, based on no information that he had, was privy to, that if anybody in the Russia collusion world should be prosecuted, it should be Hillary Clinton not Donald Trump. Donald Trump read that and said, that's my man. And within a week or two after, he was literally named as the attorney general because he, he wanted that job and he wanted Trump to signal to Trump. And he unwittingly, the New York Times was used unwittingly as a dupe in that. So that's where Barr comes from, from the very, very beginning. Pro-Trumper, pro-Trump conspiracy, anti-Hillary Clinton. That, that, that wasn't as much reported, actually, when he, got, when he got the job. The reason that he appointed a special counsel to lock him in even beyond the change, a possible change in administration, and appoint John Durham, a drinking buddy of his. Speaking of Z-Biotics, a uh, Scotch, a Scotch sniffing uh, guy with bar, um, as, as has been reported, 
The reason he did that is because they didn't like the inspector general report that was coming out about the FBI, the intelligence community, which basically absolved them of any kind of nefarious deep state anti-Trump conduct, which was the premise of Barr putting Durham into place. They hated that. They hated that attorney general report. And they, so then to keep Durham in place so that the Democrats and a future president couldn't remove him easily, they made him the, um, uh, the special counsel. Now, this is the contrast. Can you imagine a world where if in the middle of Jack Smith or Robert Herr doing his investigation about one thing, they got credible evidence and opened up a prosecutorial file, a criminal prosecution file about, let's say, Joe Biden, um, not about the documents, about something else entirely. You don't think Merrick Garland would take the podium and announce the appointment of another special counsel or that this criminal prosecution had been opened? We, we didn't know about what you just talked about, which is that when John Durham's team trying to find a case that didn't exist, right? This was a case that was in search of facts and evidence. Called the Italians, the Italian government, to ask them if they had any evidence that the, that the U.S. intelligence community and FBI were secretly working against Trump. They said, we don't know anything about that. But we do have information about Donald Trump's financial misdealings and misconduct that you may be interested in. So to talk about backfire, Operation Backfire, Trump pushes to have Durham appointed special counsel to investigate ultimately Hillary Clinton and everybody else. And the only criminal prosecution at that moment that was open, one we'd never heard of until today, and the New York Times reporting and the, and, and through the Italians until like this week, is that there was another criminal investigation of Donald Trump we'd never heard of, and it was opened by John Durham. Why was it secret? Now, he eventually, no surprise, never found there was enough credible evidence to bring an indictment or to recommend an indictment. We know why that happened. But why are you and I just hearing about this in 2023? And then, to add insult to injury, this is back to your point, Barr is complicit in all of this because he allowed the media to be duped. The media had gotten wind at around that moment of the Italian tip of Trump's financial crimes, potential crimes, that there was a opened criminal investigation that Durham had opened. Because all Durham ever talked about and Barr ever talked about was Russia collusion and whether the FBI, they allowed the media to report that it must be related to the Russia collusion issue, knowing it was about Trump and Italian mis you know, financial crimes. They let that float out there. They also allowed Here's another complicit moment for Barr. He allowed an informational vacuum to develop, and Donald Trump stepped into it, and he filled the vacuum by saying that he believed that Durham was close to indicting Barack Obama and, and Vice President Joe Biden. And Barr didn't take to the podium and say, no, that's not what we're investigating. What the special counsel is investigating is Donald Trump. So Barr, you know, Although he tried at the end to cover himself in glory with the Jan 6 committee and all the craziness and talking Trump out of all this stuff, Barr has as much blood on his hands as anybody else for the attempted coup in America and to allow and to allowing and empowering 
this out of control, maniacal, egomaniacal President Donald Trump. Because 